Welcome to the Unwritten Life Podcast, where we share that your deepest pain can lead to your biggest gain, and that your story is still unwritten. Now introducing your host, Tim Sawhook. Welcome to the show today, everybody. So excited to have you here again for another episode of the Unwritten Life Podcast. As always, I am your host, Tim Sawhook, and I'm very happy to have you here with me today. We have another great episode for you today. It's going to be a little different than a normal format, but I think you guys will definitely really enjoy it and definitely come away with some hope and encouragement as well. But before we get started, a little housekeeping. As always, I'd like to say thank you so much for downloading the podcast each week and um, really supporting that mission of hope, which we're all about, and to show that your story is still unwritten. No matter what you've been through, no matter what you're going through, that your life is evolving, always changing, and that your story has no ending to it yet, that so many good things can continue to happen in your life and so much growth is still out there to happen. So thank you so much again for downloading the podcast. I really appreciate it. But before we get into the show today, I wanted to remind you, if this was your first time listening or maybe you just popped in last week, I encourage you to go back in our first 10 episodes and check out some of these incredible stories that have been told so far. I mean, we have Bonnie Collins' story with Maya. We have Jesse Richardson's story on here. We have Katie Ersta, amazing story. Taylor Moloterno. So many amazing people about the podcast. We have Katie Isaac. We have Katie Bryant. We have everybody named Katie who has been on the any podcast who has been on The Unwritten Life. We have last week with Jessica Barnum, Michelle Cousins, and any other ones that I've missed so far. Amazing episodes to be had. Lots of hope and encouragement to be had. Lots of great stories being told. And I want you guys to take the opportunity to go back and listen to those as well. But like I told you a moment ago, we have another great episode today. And what's different is this. Uh, most episodes, as you well know, a matter of fact, all episodes, we've had one person come on, share their story, what they've been through, and what they've come through on the other side. Um, how it's different today is we have a special guest. She is an author, and she is a missionary, and she is so many more things, but she's going to come on and share a couple different stories about people that she's worked with throughout the years and seen some amazing things happen. So let's get right into it. Like I said again, our guest today, she is an author, she is a missionary, she's a public speaker, and she is so, so, so much more. Here is my conversation with Beth Guckenberger. Well, I'd like to welcome to the show today, Beth Guckenberger. How are you doing today, Beth? I'm doing great. Thank you. Thanks so, for having me. Oh, absolutely. It's totally our privilege. So for people who do not know who Beth is, Beth is one of the co-executive directors of Back to Back Ministries with her husband, Todd. How long have you guys had Back to Back Ministries? Um, uh, I lived in our hearts even as college students, the idea of it. We talked about it when we were dating and after we were freshly married, but officially we launched in July of 1997. Can you just give us like a brief description of what Back to Back Ministries is? Yeah, it's an international orphan care organization that serves orphans and vulnerable children in India, Nigeria, Haiti, Mexico, the United States, and then most recently in the Dominican Republic. Wow, so you guys are staying quite busy. Yeah, yeah, yeah there's a lot going on. <laughs> there's a lot going on. Also, Beth is an author of over eight different books, some adult books, some children's books. And she is a speaker. She speaks all over the place talking about um, women and faith and orphanage and all, the, all her missions and things that she's been going through through her journey. So we're very lucky to have her here today 
I get to know her as a friend. I, get, I know her son and my son and them are friends. They play sports together and things like that. So it's a privilege for me to have you here. So thank you very much. Oh, it's my total joy. Thanks. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So Beth, your first book you wrote, you said about 11 years ago was called Reckless Faith. Mm -hmm. And that kind of started the beginning of your journey of what you are doing now. Can you give a little brief description about how Reckless Faith came to be? Well, I was, I've always been a storyteller and I've always had good stories to tell. Um, living in Mexico, I've watched God move in and through all kinds of lives over a number of years. And so um, I started just telling those stories verbally to the guests that came down. In 2007, when I was working, when I, when I, when I came across the, the attention of the publisher, we were mm -hmm. hosting a little over 1,000 guests a year at our house. So I had lots of opportunities to tell the stories, you know, 30 people at a time. And um, a publishing company called Zondervan just asked if I'd be willing to write those stories down and put them in a memoir-esque type of format. And mm -hmm. it took me a while to agree to it. I was, I'd never written a book before. I was afraid of failing at that. Mm -hmm. But I eventually acquiesced, and uh, I knew right away the title that I wanted, and Buckles Faith was uh, born in, in 2008. Oh, that's awesome. I think it's um, funny how God works in our lives, even though we feel something laid upon our heart, but yet um, there's somebody else in the other ear that tells us, you're going to fail at this. Yeah. Don't do it. Just keep these stories to yourself. Don't share it with anybody else. And I'm glad that you stepped out in your reckless faith and did write this book. Um, changing so many lives and touching even my life. I just finished listening to her book yesterday. It's quite amazing. Um, in your book, you talk about your real heart for orphans yes. and God's mission for orphans, how he will take care of them. Can you give us a, something what it's like to be one of the hearts of the orphans, what it feels like to be neglected and left behind? You know, when we first moved there, the first child I ran into was an 11-year-old girl at the first orphanage we went. And mm -hmm. I, I just, um, man, I spent all day with just her. And at the end of that day, I looked around, and she was in an orphanage of about 100 kids. And I was thinking, 100 kids? One, I've spent all day with one girl. I'm probably going to have to spend all month, maybe even all year with this one girl for her to really understand God's love. Mm -hmm. 100 kids this is just one orphanage in the city and this is just one city in this country and this is just one country in the developing or third world. So like this is going to take a lot of people. Mm -hmm. So we just got on the phone and we asked everybody we'd ever met, like would you come down to Mexico and love on kids? Like mm -hmm. would you come spend time here? And the first group of people, the first real group of people that responded to that call was a group of junior high kids from a local, um, an area, Christian school. And they came and arrived one night, and they were sitting around our living room, and they were like 13 and 14. And I was like, Jesus, of all the, the foot soldiers you could have sent me in the kingdom, you sent us a bunch of junior high kids. What are they <laughs> going to be able to do? And um, then it came to me. I used an illustration my mom had done on me a long time ago when I was a child. And I held up a piece of paper, and I, I told them that that piece of paper represented the heart of every child that they were going to see. And that the day that they were dropped off, they were either abandoned or abused. That paper got ripped in half. And if that was the only rip that happened to them, we could probably figure out how to put that thing back together. But that's just the first rip of thousands. And they live in a children's home where they have group food and they have group clothing and they have group discipline. And they're the kid in school that doesn't have a cool backpack and doesn't go to the birthday parties and doesn't participate in after school things and doesn't ever have parents at the assemblies and 
they have visitation day and nobody comes to visit them or they have visitation and somebody visits them but they don't understand why they don't get to go home with them and just tons of circumstances mm-hmm. fall on them in that vulnerability and every one of those those circumstances represent another rip at the heart and so I ripped and ripped and ripped this paper until it was down to just a little piece of confetti and I said to these junior high kids the kids you're going to interact with this week really look like this tiny piece of paper their heart is a fraction of what mm-hmm. God created it to be so just pick up these pieces, put them back in the heart, deposit them in the name of the Lord. Just remember their name from one day to the next and share your Oreos and push them on a swing and <laughs> like everything that you can possibly do to deposit in their heart. And one day I hope they'll look around and wonder who we are and why we're here. And then we can tell them that God, that God loves them. I think that's a beautiful illustration and a sad illustration about how these poor children are left and abandoned and in the book you talked about how sometimes they're kind of tricked into going to these orphanages they tell them they're going to the circus or something and they're taken to an orphanage yeah that's exactly right when they're little they can just be carried there but you know you can't you can't pick up an eight-year-old or a ten-year-old and take them to a children's home so they have to say something that's akin to a to deception like they're going to a park or a fair or something. Mm-hmm. The kids walk onto campus and run to the playground and they don't understand where they are and then eventually turn around and realize, you know, they realize that they, where they are and what their reality is. And it can take some kids just an hour to understand what's going on. And right. some kids, a month later, they still <clears throat> don't fully understand that they've been left behind. So just another huge rip right into their heart there which yes. is so sad and devastating. In, in your book, Reckless Faith, you talk about a bunch of individual stories. And so what's different about this podcast for people who tune in every week is usually I have one person coming on and really sharing their story. Well, Beth is a witness to many, many, many stories over the years and many awesome things that God has done in those stories to really redeem those lives. And so we're really going to ask her a couple uh, stories about some of the people in her book and some of the people in her life today. Um, one of the ones I wanted to ask you about um, the chapter was called Gabriella. Can you tell us a little bit about Gabriella and her story? Yeah, she was a special needs girl that was dropped off at the children's home that was right by my house, and um, she was precious. She she had some ability to do things like she learned how to speak English, even though she couldn't do simple math. Like she had her brain worked in um, precious ways, uniquely designed for her. Um, Eventually, somebody came and picked her up, and she'd been waiting for a long time for a family member to come back and get her. Mm-hmm. And uh, that person really wanted someone to be a domestic servant for them. So she worked in their house, um, helping with household chores. But for her, she got to be in a house, and that was really important. And through a set of unfortunate circumstances, uh, she found herself um, impregnated and called me one day. Um, to let me know about the circumstances of the birth. Mm-hmm. And at birth, um, the only person was there was her sister, who was also severely um, mentally challenged. So I honestly think some hospital staff person saw these two little girls who didn't have anybody else around them and saw that they were um, mentally challenged as mm-hmm. well as um, now responsible for a newborn and realized they couldn't do it. So they called a social worker and took that baby away 
and um, that baby went immediately into government custody. And so she called me from a payphone outside of the government orphanage. She knew I had some contacts inside of there mm -hmm. and was desperately hoping that I'd be able to get her baby back in order for her to raise him. And I knew that there was nobody really taking care of her. In most cases, if somebody's taking care of a mom, then even difficult circumstances, moms can take care of babies. But if nobody's taking care of mom, then mom doesn't have any ability mm -hmm. to be responsible for a child. And so Gabby and I, um, she, she came to my house and we began to talk about her situation. And I told her that God has a plan that I don't, I don't understand it all the time and I don't always mm -hmm. like it all the time, but we can trust the promises that he wrote for her in the Bible also apply to her son that he'll come to them and hear him and lift him up and be their helper. And eventually um, we were able to get access into the home for her to see her child. And by the time she'd seen him, it had been quite a while. How long had passed between that time? Uh, several weeks, if not months. Um, Okay. He was born in March, and we, we did this in almost June. And um, I just pleaded her case, one government official after the other, like, can we figure out a scenario that allows her to have the ability to see this baby? And, and um, I had been talking to a family in my church about adoption and about the possibility of adopting the full-time care of that baby, but still allowing um, Gabby to have access to him and to do what we would consider in the United States an open adoption, which is mm -hmm. very unusual there. And um, anyway, everyone agreed. And an adoption, I adopted four children. Adoption is an arduous process that takes long, long periods of time. But on a Friday afternoon, all the government officials that needed to align themselves in order to execute this adoption did so. Social workers and psychologists and judge magistrates and mm -hmm. uh, all the way down to the judge, lined it all up so that on that day that baby could go into a permanent family that she could have peace about. And when it was time for her to say goodbye to that baby, we, we had been in offices all afternoon and signed right. papers and testified and thumbprinted. And finally they sent for him up from the nursery. And this is the first time she had seen him since the day he was born. And the nurse wisely walked into the room and put that baby in her arms first and she just sobbed she just sobbed holding him sure. just that raw emotion maternal instinct and she told that baby everything i had been telling her that god had a promise for him to come to him and lift him and be his father and make him a home and and then she told him that daddy has a plan that we might not always understand it we might not always like it but we can always trust it and as uh, she as she reassured her son of the things that she believed to be true herself, she handed that baby over. And it was not totally the happy ending that we want in stories, right. but it was a clear movement of God's hand on behalf of that child and on behalf of her that she would feel mercy um, towards him and towards a system who she thought was working against her. Oh, absolutely. I think that was really special about the story is how you broke it down. I don't know if you gave her that term, daddy has a plan. Um, just, yeah, I was just trying to make it as simple to understand as possible. Absolutely. And I think that's just a very basic childlike faith that as adults, if we could carry that, daddy has a plan. As we're going through the daily struggles, the daily doubts, loss of hope and encouragement, that daddy has a plan. Like just mm -hmm. that basic mustard seed hope. Mm -hmm. And just to see someone who was mentally challenged, 
had her own set of uh, disabilities and things against her that she could grasp that that daddy has a plan. And in the book, it was so touching how you just said, like, all the things you had been relaying to her before she let him go, that she relayed all that same message of hope just to that baby. And yeah. it was so touching of a story. Hmm. Well, I'm glad. I, I think the truth is that God's an individual God. And it, if he has those kinds of plans for her and for her son, he has those kinds of plans for us. And that that daddy has a plan for us, even though we only see a portion of it, we can trust that he's in it with us. Absolutely. There are so many different stories in the book. Another one that stood out to me because I know it really affected you and your faith was the story with Joel and mm -hmm. his food. Can you talk a little bit about that? I thought that was such a beautiful, cute story. Yeah, I was actually in Cincinnati. Uh, I've been living in Mexico, and I came back to Cincinnati just to speak one night at a church. And in that um, address, someone from the audience afterwards came up to me to tell me that they traveled to the city that we were living in and that maybe they would be coming on business sometime and would we be interested in, in eating dinner with him when he was in town and then, you know, taking um, him around and showing him all the orphanages. And I said, sure, we'd be happy mm -hmm. to do that. We exchanged business cards, but I totally lost his business card and I frankly forgot everything about him and who he was and what he was doing. And I remembered his name, but that was about it. And about four months later, he was in our city on business and gave me a call in the, in the beginning of the day to let me know that he was going to be done with work around six and he was downtown in the convention center. And if we'd be willing to pick him up, we could all go to dinner and then show him the orphanages. And I just agreed, even though I didn't know much about him, I remembered it mm -hmm. enough that I made those plans. Unbeknownst to us on that very same day, there was a man whose name was Edgar. Um, and the story is bittersweet for me because Edgar's since gone to be with the Lord. But Edgar mm -hmm. was a children's home um, director of a home that we were supporting at the time. And he had pretty much run out of money that day. And I wish he would have called me. We would have run him over this emergency kit of beans and rice and eggs and oil and tortilla. But mm -hmm. he, he was afraid the kids were beginning to put us in a place that only God belongs. That back to back or Beth and Todd are not the giver of all good things. Really, Jesus is the giver of all good things. So instead, he took his petty cash box, spent the rest of his money on the ingredients for brunch for the 50-plus kids that lived with him. And after they had finished eating brunch, he just told them they would assemble again around 5 for dinner. And when they got together at 5, there was no food in the kitchen. Mm -hmm. And the kids thought that was kind of strange. And he pulled them around the table and just said to them, you know what? I don't know where dinner's coming from, but I, I can tell you that we're going to just trust God to bring something for you. So they began to pray about that, but I didn't know anything about it. Meanwhile, my husband was like, who is this guy, and what does he do, and where are we going, and what does he want? And I didn't have answers to any of his <laughs> questions. And so um, he decided to run down to the convention center and meet this person in person before we took our family out and before we made arrangements for him to go anywhere so he could have a firsthand look at who he was. Mm -hmm. And um, that was all during this same time frame. Back in the children's home, they were praying for this meal, and there was this little four-year-old boy named Joel, or we call him in Spanish, well, and he interrupted Edgar's prayer for dinner, the way four-year-olds do sometimes, <laughs> and he just asked kind of innocently, are we praying that God brings us dinner? And everybody said, yes, we're praying that God brings us dinner, and he's like, what kind of dinner does God bring you? Mm -hmm. And Edgar said, I don't know, I'm just, I'm just 
I don't know. I don't know what kind of dinner God brings you. And Joel just said right away, I'm thinking if it's God, I bet he brings you meat. <laughs> and I was like, I don't know. I mean, we can pray for meat. So they did. They continued to pray for some meat. And then after a minute or two of that, Joel interrupted the meal again and the prayer again. and was like, um, his, his, they called him Tio. He's like, Tio, what kind of meat does God bring you? And <laughs> Edgar's like, he stopped the prayer and said, I don't, I don't know. I just know he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And he said, well, I bet if he's God, I bet he brings you, brings you steak. So they continued to pray for steak. And Todd and I didn't know anything about that. Meanwhile, Todd calls me and he says, Beth, this guy, Carlos, he works um, for the John Rawl Meat Company in Tri-County. And he, he has, like, all this meat on this display he's trying to attract some restaurant business in our city and he can't take it back over the border. And if you want it, he said we could take it. And he said, it's way more than we can fit in our deep freezer. So I'm going to pack this all up in the back of the truck. And some of the other vendors are giving me things too. I have these tie down straps. I'm just, it's more than the bed of the truck can carry. And he said, I'm just going to start driving to the orphanages and drop it off. Will you call ahead and let them know I'm coming? And I said, sure. So my first call was Edgar. He's like eight blocks from the convention center. Edgar answered the phone. I said, Edgar, this is Beth, and I was just calling to let you know that Todd's on his way over with someone and a donation. And he goes, oh, okay. What kind of donation is he bringing? And I said, I don't, I don't know. I'm not actually with him. I just know he's on his way over. And he said, you don't have any idea what it is. And I said, I know he wanted me to make sure you had room in your freezer. Do you have room in your freezer? And he's mm -hmm. like, I got some room in my freezer. And I said, okay, great. And then he got really quiet, and he said, do you know what's going in our freezer? And I was thinking to myself, if it goes in the freezer, it's going to go into an orphan belly. So, I mean, when did we get so picky? But <laughs> he, was not, um, he, he was not letting up. And he said, do you know what's coming? And I said, I know he's at the meat convention downtown, but that's all I have. Mm -hmm. And then he got really quiet again. And he said, do you know what kind of meat it is? And I said, I don't. And he said, would you mind finding out? I was like, are you kidding me? So I have the phone with him. And I called Todd. And I'm like, I don't know when we got so picky, but Edgar would like to know exactly what kind of meat you're bringing over. And he, he said, Beth, it's like the most incredible cuts of steak. It's like filet mignon and New York strip and T-bone and sirloin and USDA and choice A and wow. all the things you want with your meat. He's like, he's been trying to attract restaurant business all day today. And he said, I don't even know if they're going to know how to fix it, but I'm on my way over with it. And I said, okay, I'll call him. So I called him back and I said, hey, it's these incredible cuts of, of meat. It's like steak, like filet mignon and New York strip and T-bone and sirloin. And do you have room in your freezer for any of that? And he pulls the phone away from his ear, and he yells to the kids, Hey, kids, God's on his way over with your steak. <laughs> and I, I like that story for two reasons. One of the reasons I like it is because it's hard for us sometimes to get our backs up against the wall, and we certainly mm -hmm. don't like to be purposely put on there. And right. when we do, we, we often just call it to man. And what does man bring you? He brings you beans and rice and eggs and oil and tortilla. But... When we call out to God, he's, he wants to bring you the, the best of the best. And uh, he likes to do more than show up. He comes and shows off. And mm -hmm. I, I like the lesson that Edgar taught us. And I know now in, in heaven, he can see things in full that here he only saw in part. But I also like that story because I knew that God had a big plan for Hal, that he taught him at such a young age that it takes the faith of a mustard seed to move a mountain. That, mm -hmm. That's all God asks of him is that little mustard seed. And because of that little mustard seed, he's able to do immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine. 
Yeah, I really enjoyed that story a lot. I say enjoyed like it's like some fiction, but that it really happened. But that your takeaway, like, you know, here at ourselves, we'll settle just for the beans and rice, even yeah. though God wants to give us that steak. Yes. And how many times in your life you could have had the quote unquote steak, but you settled for what you th only saw in front of you, not yeah. what you couldn't see. Yes. Very great takeaway, just from my little boy and uh, Edgar as well. So there's a couple of things in the books we already talked about. I have a couple other questions about it. But what's some other stories that stick out from your many years being a missionary and uh, working with these orphans? You know, there's a, there's a lot of stories. In fact, I have as many stories as, as you can possibly imagine. I have these. Sure. There were two little girls that Todd and I tried to adopt when they were one and three, and mm -hmm. that adoption fell apart. And we met them again at a different orphanage when they were three and five, and we're delighted to find them again. But at that point, they were ineligible for our adoption. And then we tried um, again to bring them home when they were 10 and 12 as mm -hmm. foster girls, and finally we were able to do so. So they moved in with us for uh, many, many years, starting when they were 10 and 12. But by this point, they were um, they had been half-grown, and they were confused and frustrated and hurt and traumatized, and the oldest one was a tremendous challenge to parent. Mm -hmm. Finally, when they were um, about 13 and 15, the oldest one prayed to receive the Lord, and it was, it was amazing to me. It was a tremendous story that got her to a point where she was willing to be humbled before the Lord. But a few months after that, a family visited us from Cincinnati, from a church called North Cincinnati Community Church. Mm -hmm. And this adult man and his um, teenage children were there. And after church, he asked me, I had never met him before, but he asked me if I had a minute for a story. And I said, yes. And he said, have you ever met my mother? Her name is Barbara Shaw. And I said, no, I don't think so. I, I mean, I hadn't even met him. And he said, well, I thought maybe you'd heard of her. She's known in our city as an intercessory prayer warrior. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, yeah, I think, I've, I think that's right. I think I've heard of her. I think she's, yeah, people have told me before they've passed our requests on to Barbara Shaw. And he said, well, she died this last spring. And I said, I'm so mm -hmm. sorry for your loss. And he said, do you remember when you guys did an art auction? And I did. We had done an art auction in Cincinnati there at the Manor House. There was a girl from Des Moines, Iowa, who was very gifted in uh, oil paintings, and she'd come on a trip, and I'd given her a stack of photographs when she left, and she translated a few of them into canvas paintings, and then those paintings went to Cincinnati, where they were auctioned, and a family purchased one of those to give to Barbara, because she had prayed for their son, who had been in, hospitalized, and he said, this painting has been hanging in her house, and she's been praying for the children represented in that picture, and as she was sick, people would ask her if she was ready to go home, and she'd say, no, I'm still praying for my pastor and my grandchildren and mm -hmm. children and missionaries around the world. And he said, she asked me before she died if I would take that painting and hang it in my house and continue the work of intercession because she said, I don't feel like we're done yet, and I don't know what it looks like on this side of eternity. Mm -hmm. And I said, mm -hmm. and he pulls out a picture of the painting he had snapped, and he said, I don't feel like I have my mom's gifts, and I just say the same things over and over again. And I was hoping that you could identify the children in the painting so you could give me a specific prayer list. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I mean, <laughs> the girl's a good painter, but what if I don't understand? Like, what if I don't recognize the kids? So I would start to tell Jesus in my head, if I don't know who it is, I'm just going to, like, give him a representative story, and then he can pray that story, and then you can fix it in heaven and apply it to the right people. <laughs> But Jesus did not give me a green light for that. Mm -hmm. And 
instead, um, he pulls it out. And I asked my kids to surround me because they knew all the kids in the children's homes and I know they'd help me identify it if there was anything recognizable about their faces. And as soon as he pulled out and showed me the picture, I recognized it immediately. It was a picture from one of our Christmases. It, it shouldn't have even been in that stack of photographs, but it must have gotten shuffled in there somehow in my house. And it was one of the pictures this girl painted from Iowa and shipped to Ohio and then purchased by this family and then gifted to Barbara Shaw who prayed for those little girls. And that little girl is my 15-year-old who finally had just become um, a oh believer. My goodness. And I looked at him and I said, do you understand that your mama co-labored with me in the salvation of this little sheep that on all the days this wasn't fun anymore? Mm -hmm. That her prayers issued out there in Ohio were lifting up me so that I could continue to fight another day for this little girl. Wow. What it is that God needed. And I said, if you are looking for a list of specific prayer requests, get your pen and paper out right now. <laughs> I know that family continues to pray for... Um, She's an adult now, but for the girl that was our foster daughter, as we do too. And it was just a sweet reminder to me that, that God sees what we're going through. And he's, mm -hmm. he may be even calling on someone that we don't even know right. to be a part of our story. That is amazing. What a great feeling that was all those years later and that picture that shouldn't have even been there. Yes. That is. What an amazing reminder how God is using other people in our life that we don't even know. Yes. Really cool. Yes, yes. One of the last stories I wanted to ask you about was the story of your son, Evan. Mm -hmm. um, I knew about the story before the book, and then hearing it again, just, and what's cool about the book, if you guys haven't, haven't seen it yet, I definitely challenge you to go get Reckless Faith, and maybe get the audiobook, because Beth reads it, and it's, I feel like anytime I've heard any audiobook, it was meant to be like how the author intended it to be, mm -hmm. and it was great to hear you read these stories with the passion that you experienced them in, and especially you being a mom to Evan and the story about that. Would you mind sharing about Evan? Sure. I think that's a great story to close on. The, um, Todd and I had um, given birth to a little girl in the spring of 1998, and we were delighted to do so. She was a beautiful, our first child of what would become 10. Um, and I, we had been in Mexico for a year, and we needed to come back to the United States to get get the ministry organized and do all the things you have to do when you start a nonprofit. So we were back up in Cincinnati, um, and we talked some friends into living in the house that we had been renting the year before. That was just the first year of the ministry. So they moved there in 1998, um, lived in that space, and continued to build relationships and facilitate ministry mm -hmm. um, in our stead while we were up in the United States getting everything more formalized. And I was so delighted to be a mom and loved our daughter but I was also a little mad because I had tried really hard to adopt that year before and it hadn't worked out we tried to adopt those little girls I just told you about and mm -hmm. we had all of our paperwork done and it was in line to do it but it, it wasn't God's timing and it was the first day of school and Todd was working to support us in this process as a um, school administrator at Cincinnati Hills Christian Academy mm -hmm. and he had it was the first day of school and it was he was working very very hard um, in that role and it's the beginning of school taking tons of time and I got a phone call the morning that morning from my friends who had been living in Mexico and they were telling us that this little girl was four had been hit by a car that we all loved and I could tell when I picked up the phone there was tons of pandemonium behind them just chaos and they were telling me Ruth had been hit by a car and that and 
like, where do we take her and what do we say and where do we go and how do we pay? And they had tons of questions. And I said, mm-hmm. take them to this hospital and ask for this doctor and this is what you say. But I couldn't figure out how to get them the money. So I looked at my watch and then I, I just looked down at my daughter, Emma, and I thought, we're pretty portable. So I said, you know what? There's a noon flight out of Cincinnati to Monterey. I'll jump on it right now. I'll take some money with me. I'll get you to you by dinner. Just check her in the hospital. Mm-hmm. So Emma and I got on the plane, and I thought Todd was so busy at school, I didn't want to bother him. So I just left him a little note that said, <laughs> run into Mexico. Ruth has been hit by a car. I'll be back by the weekend. You can focus fully on school. And by the way, I took some money. And... <laughs> Uh, Beth, Beth, you have to realize only in your life is that a normal note to leave behind. Oh, by the <laughs> way, we just left and went to Mexico and took some money. Anybody else gets that note and they're thinking, oh, my God, what happened? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he might have had a little of that. Who knows? But I got there and went straight to the hospital, and Ruth is fully recovered from her injuries. But then eventually I got back to the house that my friends were staying in that had been my house the year before, and the phone rang. And they wanted – me to answer the phone because we all assumed it was Todd and he was going to give me a hard time. So they're like, oh, you face the music. And so I answered the phone, but it wasn't him. It was someone who was looking for me. That had been my phone number until just, you know, about six weeks before then. Mm-hmm. And if my friends had answered the phone, they wouldn't have understood him because they'd, they'd only been there a short period of time and didn't speak enough Spanish. But I was there. And it was a woman. She was an attorney, a Spanish-speaking attorney who was networking across the country looking for an American couple who was paperwork ready and interested in adopting a baby boy the very next day. Wow. This little boy had crossed state lines inside of Mexico and his, um, his international eligibility for adoption was only about 72 hours longer. So I was thinking to myself, this phone call home is getting more interesting by the minute. <laughs> and then I, I, told her yes. I just, I I felt like the Lord was impressing on my heart, this is to be your son. So I wrote down all the information. I was going to have to buy a flight to go to this city that he was in. And I called Todd and he answered the phone in Spanish, acknowledging who it was he knew was on the other side. And then, then I told him about Ruth and then I told him about this baby. And we just, we had a conversation I can't totally even talk about on the radio, but eventually he said, I, I, I think you're right. I think this is what God has. Mm-hmm. And um, so I said, okay, good luck telling your brand new boss you're going to be gone for an indefinite amount of time, like starting tomorrow internationally. He, he jumped on an airplane the next day and met me. And as soon as we held our son, we knew there was something wrong with him. Mm-hmm. He, his legs were scissored and we couldn't undo them. His arms were frozen in place. He was born in a rainforest. He had this crazy fungus all over him. It grew into his mouth which made it difficult to eat, so he'd lost a bunch of weight. He was anxious and constipated and crying, and we were looking at this underweight, cross-legged, fungus-covered, brown little baby and saying, oh, my gosh, he's so beautiful, but, you know, he wasn't really. Eventually, we got him back to Cincinnati, and after a series of tests down at Children's Hospital, they gave me a diagnosis of severe cerebral palsy. And the physician told me he'll never walk and never talk and maybe not even live independently and it was hard it was hard for me to process in that moment I was thinking about all the things I'd seen God do the year before in Mexico Mm -hmm. and what I knew he could do and I was thinking about my father who I'd lost the year prior to that um, at age 51 from cancer and I thought maybe God doesn't heal in the ways that he says he heals or used to heal or not for me and 
I didn't even know what to think or pray, but mm -hmm. we put all of our plans to go back to Mexico on hold, and we stayed in Cincinnati and immersed ourselves in the medical community. And Evan went to physical therapy on Monday and occupational therapy on Tuesday and magnetic therapy on Wednesday and hot water therapy on Thursday. And we were just busy trying to get him as mobile as possible. And it wasn't really working. He wasn't moving very much. And most movement was really painful for him. He had muscles that were called hypertonic, which are very tight and difficult muscles. Then right. finally, this lady from our, our county came out to the house. She works in the early intervention program and she was watching Emma and Evan playing and Emma taking his toy away and him struggling to try to get it back and me mm -hmm. rescuing him. And she said to me, you rescue him too much. You, you need to let him struggle some more. And I'm like, I don't, I let him struggle plenty. I'm always dangling Cheerios in front of him and trying to get him to move. And she said, I, I think you, you intervened too quickly. And I was like, get out of my house. Like I, I didn't even <laughs> want to hear what she had to say. And right. later that day, her words were running around my mind and he was struggling in the afternoon and I decided not to help him the way I usually do. And I just sat down on the floor and he was crying and so was I. And I was kind of behind a sink so he couldn't see me. And he started, his cry kind of started to change and I didn't really know what was going on. So I peeked over the sink to look at him and he had started to move. And I just stopped crying and went over in front of him and I kind of coaxed him the way that you coax a child who's learning how to swim. And I was mm -hmm. like, come on, buddy, you got this. And come on. And he started to kind of army crawl a little bit towards me. And it was more movement than he'd ever done before. So I ran out of the room to go get our phones that used to be attached to the wall. And my video camera that used to not be on my telephone. Because <laughs> I was going to video him for his dad. And I was going to call my mom to come over. And when I got back in the room, he'd already gotten all the way across it. And he got stuck on our couch. And he grabbed onto that fabric, and it wasn't really pretty, but he walked himself up to a stand. And then he, he did what is called cruising in physical therapy. He, he held onto the couch and kind of walked the length of it. Then he got down to the very end, and he pivoted on his heel, and mm -hmm. he walked across the room into my arms. And I what, was it, what was it like for you in that moment when you saw him pull himself up and kind of cruise around or coast around what they said. What was that moment like for you? I mean, every hair on the back of my neck stood up. I mean, I knew I was watching something supernatural, but I didn't have any, that was like ground zero. I didn't have any thing to process with it. Mm -hmm. So I just scooped them up. I'm not even sure I clicked them in their car seats and I just threw them in the car and I drove as fast as I could to where Todd was at school. And I, he saw me kind of basically take out the shrubs as I pulled up and he came out to find <laughs> out what was going on. And I just set him on the ground and he walked over to his dad. Oh my goodness. And Todd was like, what? And we had this moment in the lobby of that school and we were laughing and crying and talking and, and um, we made plans to go back to Mexico right away. And uh, Evan was like a little preschooler and in Mexico they play a lot of soccer. So he joined a little preschool soccer league and he would run down the field and get a goal and I'd just be like crying. And then he wouldn't even notice because he was like a preschooler. And then right. later on, he'd be seven and eight and nine, and he'd get a goal, and I'd be on the sidelines crying, and he'd like act like he didn't know who I was. And then <laughs> he'd be like 13 and 14 and 15 and say, like, you can't, you can't come with us. Like, if you're going to cry, you can't travel with us this weekend. <laughs> and then when he was 16 years old, we moved back to Ohio, and in Ohio, they play a lot of football. So he picked up a football and learned how to be a wide receiver for our local high school. And... Um, Today is a college sophomore 
at Taylor University where he plays wide receiver for his football team. And I had a chance to address um, the Taylor campus this last fall mm -hmm. and tell them Evan's story. And they nobody there knew it because he's like a 19-year-old boy, so he's not like running around telling people like, hey, I used to have cerebral palsy. Right. <laughs> so when I got to the part where he walked across the floor, I had him walk onto stage with me, and the students started to respond to him. And wow. I told them, the reason I tell this story is not so you all know something wildly personal about my family. The reason I tell you this story is so that you have a living, breathing example here in front of you. Mm -hmm. But with God, all things are possible. I mean, they're literally all things possible. And it, it was, uh, um, it's really how I still feel today. I, I, don't, I don't know why the same girl with the same faith prayed to the same God about two people she loved, and one thing turned out exactly how I wanted it. Right. And the other one turned out not at all a tiny bit like I wanted it. But we're, we're just trusting. We're just trying mm -hmm. and trusting that it's not a, God's not a genie God. He doesn't pop out of a bottle and mm -hmm. give us what we want. Instead, we have to be submissive to his sovereignty and right. trust. If, if he's writing the story, it's the very best version that there is. Absolutely. I think that last story about your son, Evan, really sums up what reckless faith is really all about. I mean, all of it encompassed in a lot of these stories and what you share in your books. Um, to go back to orphans as we wrap up here, I always ask people at the very end of every podcast, you know, what kind of hope and encouragement can you offer to people? And I don't think any of the things that orphans go through are the only things that those people go through. I think people in everyday life can feel abandoned can feel a lack of hope, lack of encouragement, no light, that they have no one. And how can you apply what you do with orphans every single day to everybody else who's listening out there today who feels that lack of hope? They feel like they've been abandoned by everybody, abandoned by God. How can they tap into their reckless faith? You know, I think, um, I think Jill taught us that it doesn't, it's not about am I a good enough Christian? Am I a, it's, it's really far more about do I trust that he's good? Do I trust he has a plan for me? Do I trust that he's working on my behalf? Do I trust? I think we can just take steps of faith mm -hmm. towards what we sense God asking of us and from us. And there's no way, there's no way we can ever imagine all that. He, there's no way we can ever imagine all that he has. Mm -hmm. um, but we can trust his leading, his prompting, his his heart for us and his heart to engage us in what it is that he's doing. So just making ourselves available and being faithful to that seems to me like the most powerful step we can possibly take. Absolutely. Well, I got to say, Beth, I've seen you speak different times and uh, interact with our kid. My son has been going to Monterey the last three years at the back to back campus there and serving the orphans and helping out there. So I've seen you speak. You're one of the only people I know who speaks so softly, but has such powerful words. <laughs> and honestly, that, that really sums you up about how you carry yourself. And so I really appreciate that example, and I appreciate you coming on the show today with us. Oh, it was my total joy, Tim. I'm, I love the idea that um, you want to bring hope to people. And so it was my joy to participate in that today. One thing I want to do when we're wrapping up, is there any – what way can people support back-to-back -back ministries? Yeah, they can jump on the website and just learn about us. It's back the number two back dot org, and they can learn about how they can take a trip or sponsor a child, mm -hmm. or get involved in a project we have, or um, 
there's all kinds of ways there that they can jump on and get get on board. We'd love to have a conversation with them and, and to get to know them a little bit. Okay, I'll include that in our show notes. And then lastly, what is the best way if people want to connect with you? They can find me on all versions of um, social media um, as well as through the website. There's a Beth Guggenberger page, so they can jump on that. Um, okay. And then I have a website, BethGuggenberger.com. All right, I will share that. So thanks again so much, Beth, for joining us today. Anybody needs to go out, listen to Reckless Faith. It's 11 years old, but it's like as fresh as anything about the God's reminders and his promises to us. I really appreciate it, Beth. Have a great day. Thanks. Thanks, Tim. Well, what an amazing pleasure it was to have Beth come on today and share so many different stories of hope and encouragement and how God worked so differently but so powerfully in all those different stories. And like I said in the podcast, Beth is one of the most well-spoken and soft-spoken people that I've met. So kind and gentle, but yet such powerful words, such powerful messages. And again, it was just our ultimate pleasure to have her here today. In her book, Reckless Faith, which I encourage all of you guys to go out and check it out, it's really amazing. It really will touch your heart and really kind of give you an eye-opening account of these orphans and their lives they live in not just the struggles they have, but the joys they have by coming through the other side with God's grace and love. But one of the things she talks about in her book is that you can get overwhelmed by the numbers. She said there are 164 million orphans in the world. And here you are standing here trying to minister, trying to be a missionary and try to help those. And you think of this big, massive number and thinking, how can I help? How can I do all this? There's too much for me to do. I can't do this. I can't do this. So sometimes we don't. We don't contribute. We don't help. We don't go commit to the mission. We don't do it because we get overwhelmed by the numbers. But following best lead, just show up in one person's life. Commit to them. Show them love. Show them that they have a place in this world through God's grace, through his love, through his mission, and through his vision for them. And you can do a lot of good by that. So if you've ever thought about, how can I help? Go check out Back-to-Back Ministries. They have amazing opportunities uh, for you to go serve in that local community and help those children. And my son, Luke, he's had the privilege the last three years going on a mission trip to Monterey, Mexico with back-to-back ministries through King's High School, our local high school here. And the stories he's come back with, the emotion he's come back with, the experience he's come back with has really lit a fire in him emotionally with his faith and seeing, you know, he comes back and he sees all the great things he has here and some of the things they don't have there. But he's had an amazing time being able to do that. We've even sponsored a child that he worked with. And that's something you can do also through back-to-back ministries and amazing other ministries as well, but especially spotlighting that one, which Beth is part of. But one thing I wanted to end on before we wrapped up is, and I mentioned it on the podcast, that you do not have to be an orphan or living in a third world country, or in a country with poverty, to feel some of the things they feel, the abandonment, the lack of hope, the lack of support, the lack of a future. And you could be dealing with those things right now. And I challenge you to find out what your reckless faith is. What is it in your everyday life? Is it showing up for yourself? Is it showing up for somebody in your family? Is it showing love to somebody? Is it looking for love to be shown to you, some grace shown to you? Maybe you've been through something and you feel that I'm worthless. Who would want me anymore? Um, 
I don't have anything to offer or anything like that. And I want you to tap into that reckless faith and feel that God does have a mission for you. He does have a future for you. As uh, the story of Gabriella, the most basic, simple plan, simple story was daddy has a plan. And she clung to that. And, you know, and she had some special needs and things. And, you know, maybe that she couldn't understand the big things in life, but she understood that God was going to take care of her. And when she handed her baby off that day to be adopted, she was able to speak truth into that baby right there and right then. And maybe you feel like the story that Beth talked about with the orphans about their heart being ripped, that you've been through that, and you started out with a whole heart, but something bad happened to it, and rip, it's gone, it's in half. Something else has happened to you where you're thinking, you know, I, I, I hear about this God, and I hear about all these amazing things, but what God would let me live this life like this, maybe suffer the way I'm suffering, have the pain I'm going through, another rip. And then you're let down by somebody else, another rip that Beth talked about in the book, and she pointed out such a beautiful illustration of how all these things that happen to us in our life cause these rips, these tears, and they feel like they're unrepairable. But when you lean on God, when you take a step back, take a deep breath, let him into your life, and start to feel that repairing, feel that heart being made whole again, the things that you're going through be made whole again, and I, I can't think that can be understated at all. And I know so many of you out there, so many people listening need that feeling of hope that they are repairable, that they are redeemable. And I want that for all of you. That is the mission of this entire podcast, to get these stories out in front of all of you so you can see that no matter what you've been through, no matter what anyone else has gone through, that your story is unwritten. There is hope for you. There is encouragement for you on the other side. And I do not want you to give up on that at all. I thank you guys so much for tuning in every single week. I'm getting great feedback, and I really, really appreciate it. If you are enjoying the podcast, the greatest compliment to myself, to anybody who's been on our podcast, is to spread the word. Share the podcast. Please go to iTunes. Leave a written review so other people see it, so it shows up in their feed. And, you know, one day – one of these podcasts is going to show up and it's really going to mean somebody. It may not be tomorrow. It may not be in a month. Maybe it's going to be a year from now. Someone's going to find this podcast and it's going to be because of people like you guys, because you talked about it, you shared it and you've given someone else that opportunity to have that hope that you feel by listening to some of these stories. I really want to connect with you guys and you can do that with our Facebook group on written life podcast. That's where our conversation is going on. This is where we share a lot of the things about the podcast. You can check us out on Instagram at the unwritten life podcast. Check out the website, unwrittenlifepodcast.com, where you can connect with me there. Check out the show notes. Uh, connect with a lot of our guests who have been on the podcast. They really want to hear from you, and I know they appreciate hearing from you. It makes them feel a little normal, and it lets them know my message was received. By me taking the time to come on this podcast, to share my story, to be vulnerable, that worked. That helped. So connect with them. They really want to hear from you as well. Well, we've come to the end of yet another episode, but this is not the end of your story at all. Remember, you matter, you can make a difference, and your story is still unwritten.